1: Just a quick bit of housekeeping before I introduce our special guest today. I'm so happy to announce that I'm now working on my next book. The title is Reclaim Your Digestive Health and Feel Normal Again, Fixing the Root Cause of Your GI Distress with Natural Treatments. This book should be ready mid-2016, so keep an eye out for it. That's it for our housekeeping, so let's get started. So, I'm very excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Norman Robillard. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a man on a mission. Over 100 million people have SIBO-related conditions including IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, LPR, which is reflux into the larynx or voice box, rosacea, asthma, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, autoimmune disease, leaky gut, and so much more. His goal is to inspire 10 million people, at least, to get off drugs and off antibiotics via holistic and dietary solutions. He is the founder of Digestive Health Institute and is a gut health expert. He is the author of the Fast Track Digestion Book series and creator of the science-based non-drug and non-antibiotic therapy Fast Track Diet for SIBO. and its its related conditions, including all the ones I just mentioned to us. So Dr. Robillard, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show.
2: Good afternoon, Dr. Carrie, and thanks for having me on the show. And uh, by the way, I'm looking forward to your new book. It sounds exciting.
1: Oh, thank you. So (laughs) today we're going to talk a little bit about SIBO, and I, I will be talking about that in my upcoming book, but SIBO is really getting a lot of press these days it really seems to be like the new kid on the block so can you explain to our listeners in simple language what is SIBO and how can it contribute to heartburn reflux and GERD
2: okay well that's a great question uh, you know, to begin with, SIBO. Uh, if you if you suspect you might have SIBO, you you I would ask you to consider what your symptoms are. First of all, if you have abdominal pain or cramps, or altered bowel habits, diarrhea, constipation, as well as gas and bloating, and we can add reflux to that list, uh, flatulence, nausea, dehydration, and fatigue. But some people have more severe symptoms: weight loss, failure to thrive for children that don't grow as they should for their age. Uh, difficulty digesting fats anemia bleeding so there's there 's quite a few more significant uh, health effects of having sibo but uh, by definition it's it's when there's an overgrowth of intestinal bacteria in your small intestine, and when they look at these bacteria, they typically are uh, most of them are strains that should be in your large intestine, so they 're migrating from that area where we have a lot of bacteria to help us digest all of these. Uh, Complex carbohydrates to our small intestine, which should have many, you know, fewer bacteria. So, uh, you know, the definition is somewhere around 10,000 bacteria per mil or more would be indicative of SIBO. But of course, depending on where it is in the small intestine, it could be less. In the early part of the small intestine, you want really almost no bacteria there because your own critical digestion is uh, occurring there.
1: So basically, we have. Good bacteria just in the wrong, the wrong place in our body, and because it's in the wrong place, it causes problems. Now, I have seen in my own practice at Functional Medicine Ontario, I have a lot of patients that come in complaining of digestive upsets, specifically heartburn and reflux and GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, and a lot of a lot of people want to know like, wh- where's this really coming from? And I want to get off my medications. So can you talk a little bit about how proton pump inhibitors or the PPIs, which are acid blocking medications, how does that cause SIBO? And how does that actually fuel the whole heartburn initiative?
2: Mm. That's a great question. It's It's a big question, too. You know, to start with, I think going down that road of using acid-blocking medicines, whether they're antacids or H2 blockers or or proton pump inhibitors like Nexium, uh, I think it was a a mistake, but because, you know, and as you in your own work, you focus on root causes of things. Because uh, medical research didn't understand the root cause of acid reflux, the easiest thing to do was... You know, treat the acid because they knew when people have reflux, there's acid in it and it burns your esophagus and it hurts. And of course, it can it can you can aspirate it into your lungs and it can cause all these other problems. So, using a PPI was was really for addressing the symptoms because they didn't understand the root cause, which I hope we we do have a chance to talk about today. Yes, yes. To get we'll to get, get to point. that. <laughs> but just to get to the second uh, part of your question, you know what. How could PPI's contribute to SIBO? Well, you know, people that have low stomach acid, whether it's from being on these drugs uh, where we know you have low stomach acid or even conditions like atrophic gastritis from, say, a prolonged uh, uh, infection with H. pylori, uh, this group of people tends to have a bacterial overgrowth that can even extend beyond the small intestine and into the stomach. And so that helps us realize that this stomach acid is helping keep these bacteria under control along with, you know, proper motility, our immune system, you know, uh, and, and many other things, avoiding uh, gastrointestinal infections, antibiotic usage, and so forth. And, and the biggest thing in terms of my idea about acid reflux is avoiding consuming too many hard-to-digest carbohydrates, which fuels you
1: Okay, so then can you talk a little bit about how people get into this vicious cycle where they, they have the symptoms and then very typically they either start on something very, um, not that it's benign, but like the over-the-counters, they start on Tums or Rolaids and then, and then that only works so long and then they have to go to other stronger acid-blocking medications and then that only works so long and then they're on the prescription PPIs like um, Nexium or Prilosec or or whatnot, and then how that actually creates more SIBO.
2: Right. It sounds like you're describing my own situation a decade ago, because I personally suffered with severe chronic acid reflux. I mean, it was really ruining my life. Uh, And I was taking Tums, and I was taking H2 blockers and I took some PPI drugs and they really helped with the symptoms a little bit but really never controlled the problem and it kept getting worse and it got to the point where I was actually uh, beginning to wake up in the middle of the night after having aspirated you know acid and enzymes all this reflux into my lungs which at that point really helped me realize it was it was becoming a serious condition. And so I was one of those people doing just that. I was taking these medications. It wasn't helping, and I was getting worse. But the thing that turned turned it around for me was uh, one of my sons, who was a uh, bodybuilder and a trainer, convinced me to go on a low-carbohydrate diet to lose a few pounds. But before I lost even a single pound, my acid reflux completely went away. And so that helped me realize that there was something about carbohydrates that were actually driving at least my case of heartburn. And that's what you know, that was ten years ago. And since then I've done a lot, a lot of work getting to the bottom of what's going on and came up with a new theory about the underlying cause of acid reflux.
1: You know, one of the reasons why I really love doing these interviews is because I get to talk with all these different experts from around the world and usually they have a story related to their own health and a health problem that they had and how they resolved it and then how that really helped push them down the path in their particular uh, field of health care. So can you talk a little bit um, in more, a little bit more detail about uh, the specific diet that you ended up putting together?
2: Sure. And you know, this was an evolution, and, and really, when I when I think back, my story really fits that evolution, because initially, I found that, that being on a very low-carbohydrate diet was working for me, um, but I really got curious about why it was working. Just as a scientist uh, and a microbiologist, I, I'm curious by nature, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it, so I started doing some research on how uh, we digest fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. This wasn't my field. Remember, I was really doing molecular biology and genetics in the, in the biotech industry. So I had to learn this pretty much from scratch. But as I read and thought about the digestive process, you know, chewing and salivary amylase for starch and pepsin and acid for breaking down proteins, lipase for fats, I, I was pretty much walking through the digestive tract. And when I got to the small intestine, a light bulb went off and involving gut bacteria because as a microbiologist, I had actually grown and studied a wide variety of bacteria in the lab for many years in graduate school. And then when I was a postdoc at Tufts uh, in Boston, I was actually growing um, intestinal bacteria. We were studying the genetics of Bacteroides fragilis and E. coli. So I had to grow large amounts of these. And I remembered two important points about these intestinal bacteria. They get the bulk of their energy from carbohydrates and most of them produce a lot of gas. In fact, so much intestinal gas is produced that there's been well-documented cases of explosions during surgery, which is kind of a scary thought. But it goes to show you how much gas there is. And so, immediately a theory popped into my head that perhaps these excess dietary carbohydrates, if you consume too many, Many of them were being malabsorbed and were promoting a kind of gut dysbiosis, an imbalance of microbiota with too many gas-producing strains, possibly uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Although when I was first researching this, I had never even heard of SIBO. I never had even thought about it. This, this theory kind of sprung up on its own, and only after did I start to realize, gee, I think I'm talking about the same thing here, but according to this idea, acid reflux occurs due to microbe-induced gas pressure. Imagine a volcano in your intestines and reflux is the lava, overflowing into your stomach and forcing its way into into the esophagus. And so the great thing about this theory is, is that whenever you come up with a new way of looking at something, you can use it as a lens, a new way of looking at an old problem. And so I began asking questions based on this bacterial overgrowth idea as the cause. And through this process, you either destroy your theory or you find evidence that supports it.
1: So going back to the gas. So we we know, you and I know, and a lot of people in functional medicine and natural medicine know that gas and bloating is actually considered the hallmark sign of SIBO but actually, a lot of people can have SIBO and not have any gas or bloating at all.
2: Yeah, that's a, a very good point, and and I've thought about that a lot, and and honestly, I'm not sure what the ultimate answer is to that, but I can think of a couple of possibilities. <clears throat> you know, when you think about your digestive digestive tract, it is compartmentalized, right? If you had, and and that's why I say dysbiosis. A lot of times I'll use both terms because we're still opening this can of worms and examining it to see exactly what's going on. But you could imagine that if you had a lot of uh, uh, fibrous types of carbohydrates that were very hard to break down, some of that might be happening later in your small intestine or in your large intestine. And so where exactly these blooms of gas-producing bacteria are occurring may be different for different people. So in some people, in some people, they may have these blooms in their large intestine and they get a lot of cramps and other symptoms. Not, not as much of that gas pressure works into the small intestine and stomach. Whereas if it happens, more of this overgrowth happens in your, in your small intestine, especially towards the proximal or early part of it, there's a better chance that this gas and gas pressure will be translated into the stomach and cause reflux. And, of course, the other possibility is that it, some people may have a tighter set of lower esophageal sphincter muscles on top of their stomach that, hold, that are supposed to hold the contents in your stomach. So there's two possibilities.
1: Yeah, it can be so complicated. And when I'm seeing patients, and, and we're talking about intestinal health, and about really trying to find the root underlying cause, I actually find myself very often recommending the SIBO breath test and doing a stool test so that we can evaluate both the small intestine and the large intestine to try and find out where the problem is, if it's in one or the other or both. It can really be tricky. And as you said, all of this... Um, information. We're really in the infancy of research on all this bacteria and gut health, and it's very exciting.
2: It is exciting, um, but I completely agree with how you're handling that in terms of you need to get some information many cases. right? You, you, in my case, I'll, I'll talk to people because we have a consultation program as well, and, and some people don't want to go through all the testing and spend all the money, and I'll just say, you know what, you can just try the diet and see, see how you feel. So that's some people are good with that approach. Other people really want to know. And of course, if you can get additional testing, you you can learn a lot of important information. For instance, the stool testing, right away you can figure out if there's some parasites or fungi involved here. Or is it, you know, just some really wacky uh, uh, overgrowth or undergrowth of bacterial strains? And, of course, in these stool samples, you can't look at these mucosal bacteria. So you're a little bit limited. But I still think it's a great idea. You can get a lot of information. Next, you mentioned breath testing. And I also think that is a great, great test to do. Um, But I would recommend, if you could only have it done once, to get, first of all, a lactulose breath test as opposed to a glucose breath test because glucose is absorbed very quickly in most cases in the early part of the small intestine. And so it can't tell you much about the latter part of the small intestine. So I'd say choose lactulose as a sugar solution. And also in these breath samples you collect and, and you know just for your listeners, you can do this through the mail these days, although the lactulose, you might need a prescription for that. Uh, but you can do it through the mail, send it back to the company, such as Commonwealth Labs is one that does this. And they'll send the results to your doctor, but um, I would have both hydrogen and methane gases analyzed. And the reason is is because the more work that's being done on this, and a lot of great work is coming out of uh, Dr. Mark Pimentel's lab at Cedars Sinai, is showing that you know the hydrogen excess hydrogen production is more associated with diarrhea type illness, whereas high methane gas production is uh, very tightly linked to um, constipation.
1: Okay, so we were talking a little bit earlier about how for the listeners out there who right now are suspicious, huh, I wonder if I have this bacterial overgrowth, that we have options. One option is to do the formal testing. The other option is to do the diet or to try some herbal... Um, antimicrobials herbs that would kill off bacteria there are many different options so when it comes to the diet in your experience would just doing the diet change completely eradicate the SIBO and then therefore eradicate the reflux
2: I think that is really a a key question that you're asking right there in other words which which treatment is the go-to treatment should it be? And there's, there's a lot of uh, different views on that. I mean, I break it into three buckets. One type of treatment is you're really treating the symptoms. Right? We talked about PPIs, but you also have antidiarrheals, uh, laxatives, pain meds, etc. So you can treat the symptoms. Uh, you can use antibiotics. And really, in this case, I put pharmaceuticals and herbal antibiotics in the same bucket. Uh, Because having spent, you know, 10 years researching antibiotics, in fact, I worked on the development of Cipro when I was at Bayer Pharmaceuticals, Uh, I know that some antibiotics come from plants, some come from fungi, some come from bacteria, some are synthesized in the laboratory, and some come from, you know, the plants come from herbs. But regardless of where they come from, it's really more about, you know, what is this molecule? Uh, You know, how, how does it inhibit bacteria and and which strains does it inhibit and what's the minimal inhibitory concentration of each of these antibiotics so i look at them more of a what what organisms do they kill or inhibit what's their mechanism and what's the what's the concentration you need to kill them so i put those both in the same bucket and then the last one is is diet and i would preface diet these days with science-based diet because we now have much more science going on Uh, in studying diets and how they can uh, improve uh, functional gastrointestinal disorders. So those are my three groups. And I personally would, and this is why I'm pushing so hard to do some work and I presented a pilot study we did uh, on the fast track diet at the um, Digestive Disease Week meeting uh, in 2013 because even though I'm way out of my comfort zone here, I want these gastroenterologists to know that there are safe, effective dietary means and they should start with those for these types of conditions for functional gut disorders before jumping to drugs or antibiotics. That's, that's my goal, to change their minds, to do enough studies, to do larger studies, and to get the fast-track diet on hospital formularies for people with, uh, with these types of, of issues. And so there's a couple of reasons why I feel this way. First of all, I think we can probably both agree that treating the symptoms and using all these different drugs that attack the symptoms is just not a good idea. And you know, we could list all of the problems with PPIs. Every year, a new study comes out saying it it causes this problem or that problem. You can't absorb calcium or magnesium, or it, you know, you can get pneumonia. You can it can lead to C. Diff. The list goes on and on and on and on. So. Let's just take those off the table for a minute. <laughs> and so it's down to antibiotics or a diet, right? And here's why I think diet-based solutions make better sense. Because antibiotics as they stand right now, are sh- are, it's a shotgun approach. These antibiotics kill both good, kill or inhibit some some are and some are inhibitory. They kill or inhibit both good and bad types of bacteria. And they don't necessarily kill them in the amounts of the levels that we want either. So we know with antibiotics, there's a risk of antibiotic associated diarrhea, especially Clostridia difficile infections. So and many other issues and potential problems. Uh, another issue with antibiotics, at least for SIBO, you know, some very good work has been done. Again, Pementel's work is just outstanding in this area. These studies are still short term, so we don't know whether the improvement, and they do see an improvement in about half of the people that take antibiotics for SIBO, but we don't know whether the response is durable yet. And some data right now shows that a good number of people that treated with antibiotics relapse. And, and oftentimes, I think part of the problem is they're not encouraged to change the diet. Hey, you can take these antibiotics and go out to dinner, have fun, get back to life as usual. But I think what happens is they, many times it doesn't work. And then the third problem with antibiotics is antibiotic resistance. And, and that doesn't just mean a failure in the therapy for that person, it does. It will be a failure. But more important than that, it really affects everyone, all of us. We need antibiotics. We need to save them for life-threatening, serious infections. Or maybe the most serious forms of, of SIBO. We mentioned some of those more drastic uh, symptoms of anemia and so forth, failure to thrive. There might be instances where they'd be appropriate, but not, in my view, as a first line therapy. I mean, look at just pick up any journal or newspaper these days methicillin resistant Staph aureus, uh, carbapenem resistant Enterobacteriaceae, Klebsiella pneumonia, E. coli. That means a couple of hundred thousand people that are going to the hospital and failing on antibiotics with infections because of this problem, and about 20,000 or so are dying every year from it. So I'm just very, and this comes from a person that worked on them for many years and knows that they're life-saving drugs, but I really want to save the arsenal and not use it unless we need to. That's why I want to really develop better diets and use diets first. So, and there's some good examples out there, low carb, low starch, low FODMAP, Paleo, the elemental diet, Of course, that's probably more of a hospital setting in most cases for more severe uh, conditions. But the fast-track diet is modeled on, on these diets in a way, but the, but the diet limits all fermentable carb types, not just some. And then basically it's a quantitative approach. So you're not cutting everything out, but you're limiting it in terms of grams that you, that you consume per day of the carbohydrates that will be available for these bacteria to use to overgrow so that's (laughs) that's the short of it
1: so i know i'm sure there's some listeners right now thinking okay i understand everything that dr robier just said and i get that diet is really important now do i have to be on the diet the rest of my life can i be on this diet for a certain period of time and then go back to you know my quote regular diet? That question always comes up, you know, in practice.
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great question, and it's the one I never practice. with. <laughs> but it is a good question. Put in its simplest form, I, I do believe that as we get older, many of us uh, don't digest foods quite as efficiently as we did when we were young. Um, you know, we can hope that uh, Tom Brady will be out there playing for the Patriots when he's 45, but probably not. It's not he won't be quite as athletic as he is today or when he was 35. Or so I think our digestive system is very similar. Now, some people will be great athletes in, into the 60s. Some people will have great digestion into the 70s, but not everybody will. And I was one of those uh, people uh, and there's plenty of us. We talked about 100 million people with SIBO. What's that, a third of the U.S. population? And so many of us, I really think that we aren't as efficient digesting foods, particularly carbohydrates, as we get older. And I think that's why we see IBS and GERD and some of these other conditions occur in autoimmune conditions occur as we get older, into our 40s. And so... I think you have, the first step is to really, first of all, cut back on the amount of these fermentable carbohydrates. And that's what the fast-track diet does. It uses the glycemic index, which normally measures how fast carbohydrates enter the bloodstream compared to glucose. I've turned the equation around so that it measures how many carbohydrates from a given food persist in the small intestine. And so I think it's first important to limit this FP. And get your symptoms under control. And so, just using myself as an example, I've been doing this for 10 years. And I must say, my digestive system is very, very tolerant now. I almost never get any kind of uh, uh, acid reflux, um, once in a while, an occasional belch. And even when I eat some of the foods I shouldn't, around holidays or occasionally, like we're taking my folks out to dinner tonight, I'll probably eat at least one thing that I shouldn't. Um, But I almost never get symptoms. And I know that I can go three, four days eating the way I shouldn't. But if I I persist, eventually my symptoms will come back. So does that mean I can't eat the way I used to? Yes, I can't. But I can on the short term because I have my digestive health intact
1: because of the way I eat on a regular basis.
2: Does that begin to answer that question?
1: That does, yeah. And uh, so I have found in my private practice, it's about, f- I would say about 50% of the time when I present the the treatment options to patients for um, fixing their SIBO, about 50% of the time they'll say, you know what, Dr. Curie, I want to start with herbs. I just want to kill off this bacteria. And then the other 50% of the time, they say, you know what, I want to try the diet first. So for those people that want to go and do the diet first, how long do you think they should do it before they start seeing a difference? And at one point, should they consider, well, maybe I should do a course of antibiotics?
2: Mm. One more piercing question. <laughs> and the answer to that question, I believe, is It depends. If you have simple heartburn, and that's what I had, acid reflux where refluxing acid and enzymes and bile and everything else that's in reflux into my esophagus and it hurt and it burns. That is very, very responsive to this type of diet. And I think it's probably because it does take a lot of gas pressure to, to drive reflux. And so pretty quickly, you get this overgrowth under control to the point where you're not refluxing anymore. So for people with simple heartburn, they can they can expect a dramatic improvement between one and a half and three days. But I work with a lot of people that have LPR, laryngopharyngeal reflux. And because they've they've heard that our diet is actually working, people are saying it's working for their LPR, but almost everyone says the same thing. The first month Mm, not really working, you know maybe the bloating's better, not really my my throat clearing and some of these you know symptoms um, uh, breathing still problematic two months still a lot of people are uh, not completely better, but out by three months, they really start to see an improvement so in that case, you're dealing with something that's mm, more subtle you're you're dealing with you know things like your delicate. Uh, you know uh, vocal cords and maybe just uh, acidic vapor and uh, and a little pepsin that refluxes and and persists there is, is irritating that and so you've got to stop that reflux for a good while and and maybe stop it even better than with simple simple heartburn to get that to heal that tissue to heal and for you to feel better so with LPR it's re- it's like a rule of thumb 1 to 3 months with heartburn it's 1 to 3 days It's interesting, isn't it? And so I would say you could just walk down the line with each condition and say, first of all, you know, you need to look for underlying causes. If you have celiac disease and you have severely uh, damaged villi and microvilli, that can take a year to heal, you know, several months to a year or more, because you've really done extensive tissue damage and and of course, there might be some other reasons. We could get into another day about a gluten-free diet not being the complete solution. Uh, but so that takes a lot longer. Um, if you had uh, you know motility problems, and you have an overgrowth of uh, methane, brevi smithii, those those archaea organisms that produce methane, that's a very challenging condition because those organisms are very persistent. They're very hard to impact uh, through diet and uh, even antibiotics. Uh, they've looked, had studies where they looked at people uh, with constipation uh, and their methane levels and then looked again at the same people 35 years later and found they were the same, <laughs> that it was stable for 35 years. So it, you really have to look at what the problem is and then you can, I think, better assess how effective a diet dietary control would be, and what's the timeline you're looking at?
1: I know that, that last question was a little bit unfair to ask, but I know people are thinking about it. And oh, that from no. a doctor's standpoint, it, it really depends on the patient in front of us that we're looking at, that we're treating, and all the other factors that are going on, because SIBO is just one of the factors, and there's probably six other things that need to be addressed at the same time, too. But at least you've kind of given our listeners an idea about when they implement the fast-track diet, what they should expect. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Robiart, how can our listeners find out more about you?
2: Let's see. Again, I need to prepare for these types of questions better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, we, they can always
2: go to digestivehealthinstitute.org because most things we loop back to this um, uh, website and blog site. Uh, for instance, if they wanted to purchase the, um, the new Android or iPhone fast track diet apps that just came out this week, that information is up there. But we also have a, a Facebook group, closed group, so you have to basically join. Um, uh, and so, uh, but that takes two seconds. Uh, so it's the fast track diet. And, and whenever you're looking for the fast track diet, you have to spell it T R A C T fast-tracked diet, uh, official Facebook group. So I think those are two really, um, great sources to connect with me directly, uh, our, our people and, and, and um, uh, basically our community. So for, the, well,
1: for listeners the listeners out there, I'll make sure that those links are in our podcast notes so that you can easily find Dr. Robiard. Norm, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has just been an awesome interview.
2: Oh, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed
1: it myself. All right. That wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Norman Robillard. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone.